Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. Prepare yourself for some laughs today. I'm joined by stand-up comedian, presenter and actor Patrick Keelty. He started his career in pre-Ceasefire Belfast as the host of Northern Ireland's first comedy club, The Empire Laughs Back. And fast forward to the present day, he's just been announced as the new host of The Late Late Show on RTE, the iconic Irish chat show which has been on air since 1962. A big job. Patrick is one of County Down's most famous sons and as well as making documentaries about about Northern Ireland's recent past, he's also made his acting debut in an Irish film called Ballywalter in 2022. One place you'll find him every week, though, is presenting his much-loved Saturday morning show on BBC Radio 5 Live. And speaking of sports, today we're also joined by former Olympian Greg White. Greg is a physical activity expert whose specialist subject is training celebrities, just like Paddy, to take on huge sporting challenges for charity like Sport Relief and Comic Relief. But first of all, here's Patrick. Patrick Kilty, thank you so much for coming on The Midpoint. <laughs> it's great to see you. Great uh, always to hear your dulcet tones. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, I'm 52 and uh, coming on a show called The Midpoint at 52. This, this is the greatest moment of my life where you have actually <laughs> predicted I'm going to live until 104. This is, this is a Isn't good that start. Great? Well, listen, you've just got one of the dream jobs I mentioned in your introduction. I imagine for you growing up, you know, the idea of presenting The Late Late Show would have been like the absolute kind of upper echelons of what you wanted to do in broadcasting. You're living, you're in here, you're in the heartbeat of your life. Life must feel great. It really does. You know, I, I, I have this sort of weird, I, I don't know, things are going really, really good. And, and you always have that thing in the back of your head, which is, is this, is this too good? What's around the corner? But I, I feel as I've got a little bit older, I'm, I'm much more accepting of, hey, this is good news. Let's, let's celebrate this good news and sort of celebrate this moment. And then, you know, who knows what's around the corner? So you, you got to get on with it now. Yeah. And do you think that's because you've rode through a few different kind of incarnations of yourself almost within your career? And maybe when we're younger, I don't know, we take the defeats and we take what well, I'm putting it in sporting terms now, obviously, but we take the setbacks and the kind of knockbacks a little bit harder. And actually, you learn that it's it's all kind of the rough and the smooth comes, doesn't it? And some days you're in, some days you're out. I, I kind of think it's, you know, we grew up by the sea. We grew up by a little village, seaside village in County Down. And, you know, when you grow up by the sea, you realize that the tide comes in and the tide you know, goes out. And sometimes when the tide goes out, a lot of people don't think it's going to come back in. And I think that whenever you start out, you know, you can dress it up with as much manners as you want, but the ego that is required to actually stand up on stage in front of a quarter, you know, with a quarter of an inch of microphone cable between you and hundreds of people and say, this is what I think's funny. What do you think? There's definitely some type of God complex there. 
And so at the start of your career, you know, you kind of think that you're going to be able to control every single thing that comes your way. And I think what you end up doing, or I know what I did, was that I didn't celebrate the successes because I kind of thought that is what should have been happening. Naivety is what I would call it. Naive confidence? Yeah, very much so. That sort of naive confidence. And and that got sort of cut away from me pretty quick, that idea whenever I came over to England to work. And, you know, I've been doing really well back in Belfast and set up a comedy club and people loved me and wanted to hear the type of jokes that I was doing. And then came over here and this was sort of the first time it was like, who's this dick? And so, and so it's that thing of, of uh, going, ah, okay, am I, am, is that who I am? And, you know, at times maybe it was. So I, I kind of think that disappointment's good for you. You know, I, I think in terms of trying to form who you really are and try to tease out who you are as a person, there's always that gap i think between who you think you are who you actually are and who you want to be and then and, who everybody else thinks you are right exactly god for yeah and then <laughs> suddenly you realize opinion in. <laughs> <laughs> but then you suddenly realize that who they think you are is nearly closer than to who you think you are yourself so so when you have to sort of get with the program and sort of work out what reality is rather than what you want reality to be so getting to this stage of, of your life where you're sort of comfortable in your skin you know the things that that you're happy about yourself and and know the things that you're not and and just you know getting on with that I think it's it's a nice part of my life to be in and doing all of this right now, having had a period of time where you're away from the country because you you and Kat and your kids were living in L.A. for well, she was there for a long time and you were out there. I know you were coming back and dipping in, but you didn't have a regular vehicle for a while here in the UK. Did yeah. You? Yeah. Like I, I think I think one of those things was I didn't want to have to start over again over there. That idea of going on the road and doing comedy clubs and, you know, if you're if you're a comedian and you're you're going to be trying to to get into that marketplace, you, you got to go on the road, you got to do gigs and going on the road in America. That's not just, you know, I'll be back in my bed tonight. That's you're on the road. And so whenever I still had enough work over here that was satisfying me, it was nearly easier to fly back and do that and get well paid than fly away from home in America for the same amount of time and not be paid. So that was sort of the decision behind that. Did your ambition wrestle with that? So in your ambition thinking, um, have I got no ambition then? Do I not want to crack America? Do I not want to, you know, being out there and seeing, or was being there actually the antidote to that almost? You know, sometimes when you're away from something, you think it's exciting. And then when you get there, it perhaps isn't quite what you thought. No, I mean for for me, you know, I um that was 10 years before that really. You know, I I went out there and I did TV shows and I hosted stuff and you know, I had a series which was in the can and that was going to be broadcast and then 
you know, the head of entertainment on that network, he left and someone else came in and the series never got shown. And so the idea that... Yeah. So look, I mean, that the idea of by the time I got together with Kat and I was going back out to America, I was going back out to America for the second or third time. It wasn't that I was going there to give it a go. I was going there because I wanted to be with someone I loved. Whereas 10 years previous to that or 15 years previous to that, I was going out there, you know, and I think, you know, what's really, what is interesting about it is, is that I don't really know anybody, you know, there's very, very few people from this side of the pond go over there and manage to do, you know, what, you know, my missus did and James Corden, Gordon Ramsay, you know, it's a, it's a fairly small in terms of hosting, you know, we have, you know, the personalities like Simon Cowell and, and different things like that. But, but I think actually walking out there and saying, Hey, hello and welcome to the show and America actually accepting you. That's a quite a small pool. You know, I always love coming back here whenever James Corden was really starting to take off and just seeing the, the nonsense that people were saying about him back here in Britain when he was someone who'd actually gone, taken a chance. He works really, really bloody hard at what he does. And he's done something that nobody else, you know, over here, all the people that were kind of going, oh, yeah, oh, don't talk to me about James Corden. You're going, well, I'm going to talk to you about James Corden. He's a really big deal and he works really hard. And maybe if you worked a bit harder, you might be the big deal that he is. So I think that's a, a really good example of, Another thing that I've learned as time has got on, which is there's enough dinner there. Eat your own dinner. You know, this idea of, oh, what's he doing? Well, why, why have I not got that dinner? Well, why don't you just sort of go into the kitchen, make something yourself, right? And and eat it and you might find. So so I think that that was also an interesting thing in terms of when you're uh when you're a comedian who can write a tour, you can always, you know, go and put a show on. You know, I wrote a radio sitcom and, you know, that idea of being able to self-generate, I think, is really mentally very, very different from the idea of sitting there waiting for gigs. The idea of if you're an actor and you're waiting for those words to to fall through the door, you know, if you're a presenter and you're waiting for that gig it sort of feels that that you can't take control of your own destiny. Whereas I think that if you've got the ability to write and the ability to get up on stage and do something, then, you know, you can write one man shows, you can do plays, you can do different things, you know, so... so And you can do those anywhere, actually. So if you're in a period of writing, being in LA doesn't make a difference, does it? It doesn't, make, doesn't matter where you are if you're in, in that period of, of your year. You right. Like. And so that's what I was doing. So, you know, I was able to write a stand-up tour over there. And then, you know, I was coming back over here and doing that. I wrote a radio sitcom and came back over here. And so I, I think a lot, a lot of people sometimes think that stuff isn't coming their way when in actual fact, you can kind of make most things happen. Most things, if you just work out how to do it. 
No, I think there's a, a not just obviously in the industries that we're talking about, but I think that's a really important kind of message to a lot of the mid midlife community, isn't it? Because if you want to create change, you have to be a bit more proactive about it at this age, I think. I think in your early career, whatever you're doing, there seems to be a natural order of events, you know, and maybe you go and join a law firm at 22 after university and then you get promoted and then you get a seat, you're a senior. Well, you could sit there and do that for the rest of your life. But if you want to go and do something interesting with all of that, you might have to start that process yourself and that involves confidence and a bit of bravery i think there's two things about that for me i think one is the longer you are in a certain area of your life then the furniture that tells you that these are the rules become ingrained in you so so you you sort of think to yourself well i can't do that because of this and you can normally come up with sort of five or six reasons why you shouldn't do something first before the three or four reasons that maybe why you could. And I think that, you know, that was something which was, which was interesting about living in America and the American attitude was you try, you fail, you try again. You know, well, going back to what you said about the attitude to James Corden, sorry to interrupt you, but that's very, that's so very British, isn't it? That you're right. You know, I've read hardly anything positive about his journey over there. No, but knowing that he was on a show every night, you know, and obviously doing a really great job. That's quite a British thing, isn't it? Build them up, knock them down and even build them up, send them across the other side of the world to one of the most notoriously difficult places to make it and still knock him down. Right. And and I think that that it's also a really good example of the thing that frees you up, I think, to make decisions and to be able to be where you want to be in your life is realizing that no one cares. You see, all the people that you think care about you, they kind of don't. And the minute that you realize that, it's it's the most liberating thing in the world. That idea of, oh my God, well, what would so-and-so think? Like, you know, the idea that that, you know, going back to James, that idea of, yeah, of course people will talk about James Corden, but they're probably only talking about him for maybe three minutes of one conversation that they've had in a month. And so so you can't get paralyzed by that idea of, oh my God, what will people think? They genuinely don't care. So if you want to do something in your life, you really have to realize, yeah, some people mightn't agree, some people might talk, some people mightn't talk. But at the end of the day, you're the person, you know, opening your eyes and living this life. So just sh- you got to shake that off. Coming back from L.A. full time now as a family, and it kind of pertains quite a lot to the whole midlife experience, I guess. I imagine, you know, having visited L.A. and spent a bit of time there, you know, you're surrounded by beautiful people all the time. Health and fitness is, and well-being, you know, it all started there. You know, <laughs> that obsession with youth and uh, plastic surgery and, and tweakments and, and all that stuff. You know, it pretty much is the, the industry um, hotbed. Are we are we kind of, you know, we're always in the slipstream in lots of ways culturally behind America do you notice a massive difference when you're back in London? Does it feel like, you know, living in London is a is a totally different planet? Or do you think we're closer to that than we ever were? Apart from the teeth. Uh, <laughs> apart from the teeth, there's, there's a few differences. You know, what, what is quite interesting is having, uh, we got married in 2012. And I felt that living in London, that was the high watermark of a self-confidence that Britain had in itself. Uh, 
Yeah, that you see, and and so mm. it was a kind of a place where, hey, London's the coolest city in the world. You know, we, we, you know, everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. All of these things, and I think that you know, coming back then, um, sort of post Brexit and Trump, and sort of seeing how the world changed and the attitude, the attitude really had changed. You know, I think that generally in the world now, there just seems to be this this notion of. Yeah, well, it can't be my fault. I mean, it has to be. It has to be somebody else's. So you know, you end up blaming. Well, you know, is this political decision or is that political decision or is these people coming over or is different things? So this, this seems to just be a slight paralysis of positivity, and and I think it's way way too easy for people over here to look at America and go, <laughs> oh, what do they know with their positivity? Why why don't you give it a go? Why don't you actually wake up, be a little bit positive and kind of see what happens? So uh, I, I think, you know, the, the L.A. lifestyle and attitude sometimes gets a worse rap than it deserves. So and that, that I was alluding, obviously, to things that are a bit more superficial, that kind of the visual and the aesthetic and everything. Is that blown out of proportion then? Do you think that actually it's not all that L.A.? It's, it's, there's a lot more to it. It's got more depth. Are you saying it's got more layers? I, I think if you live in L.A., I think if, you, if, if you're there for the entertainment industry, entertainment is vacuous full stop. Entertainment is vacuous anywhere. And, and so... The brilliant thing about L.A. is that L.A. is the pinnacle of entertainment. And if entertainment is vacuous, then L.A. and entertainment is going to have that completely nailed. I mean, it's the, you know, it's that lovely thing of what's L.A. for? Oh, my God, I love that idea. And it's, oh, my God, I love that idea. What's L.A. for? I hate that idea. I'm never going to call you again. Oh, my God, I love that idea. <laughs> so, so. There's, I think that that people confuse the entertainment industry in LA with what LA is. Like LA is a really vibrant Hispanic city, which has got grit and it's got real jobs and there's got a real life going on. And I think that the image of it is slightly different to what life in LA is actually like. Yeah, you've mentioned Kat um, a couple of times. I mentioned it too. Um, so I just want to take you back to when we met. Uh, well, I think we met before, but you very kindly agreed to be my mentor for a comedy, uh, stand-up comedy thing for, for charity, which we won collectively, didn't we? Hey, hey, you um, won. I think you won. <laughs> no, 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 um, you and won. I, I wrote about this in my book, which I'm sure you've read. And maybe you're balancing your microphone on it. Throughout my time working on comedy uh, with Paddy, I teased him about being single and said he should get back together with Kat Deedy, the television presenter he dated before she went to work in LA. He clearly adored her. After the event, I sent him a box of wine to thank him for all of his help. On the note, I wrote, thanks for the help. Now go marry Kat. A few months later, the tabloids reported they were dating again. And I can tell you, a decade later, they're married and have two sons. Now, I feel like I might have given him the nudge he needed. But I wasn't invited to their wedding. I'm not godmother to their kids. So maybe he doesn't quite see it that way. Do you see it that way, Patrick Kilty? By the way, that's an excerpt from the first half, the excellent memoir from Gabby Logan. I mean, people used to say to me that all podcasts were about self-publicity and uh, clearly coming on here now, I know they're not. I know, I know that it's really about depth and interest in the guest. Uh, so thanks for clearing that up. Uh, I would say uh, the, the wine definitely uh, gave me the Dutch courage 
to, to make that decision. Yeah. A seri- <laughs> on a serious point, though, you were a little bit older than, you know, kind of at that point, you, you know, you're getting to the point where thinking about settling down. But you did seem like it was clearly she was the one, but there was a nervousness about actually going, this is it. This is the one. And I'm going to make this commitment and we're going to have a family. Look, look, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I was I was at a stage in my life you know, just before that, where I was going through the, um, I still thought people cared, you know? Right. So, so in terms of your decision-making process and, uh, and so I was still in that, oh my God, what if, what, what if I, you know, and, and what if she says, and, and so going through all of those things, that sort of spiral of sort of weird negativity. And then I remember it was her birthday and I was in Ireland and, uh, you know, with the time difference, uh, I may have remembered her birthday in and around. Could have been in and around midnight, Gabby. Who knows? I mean, there was a few <laughs> pints in the little pub and uh, I sent her a text message and she texted back and I thought, oh, she must want to chat. Clearly, clearly we all know that. Yeah. So I then picked the phone up, uh, go out into the car park of uh, of this rural pub. And you can imagine what that's like in closing time, you know, like just it's like the first 20 minutes of saving Private Ryan. You know, you've kind of got, it's, you know, it's just like somebody over there throwing up, you know, somebody over there having a pee against a car, you know, and then realizing that it's their car. Um, so so then I ring her and I go, oh, yeah, happy birthday. And uh, and she said, yeah. I said, what are you doing? She said, going to the Beverly Hills Hotel. I'm going to have, you know, brunch tomorrow. And, you know, there's going to be a really nice few friends. I, I, I'll come. I'll come. I'll go. <laughs> and uh, she said, yeah, night, 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 you're pissed. So um, when I realized, no, no, I, I will go. So got a taxi home, set an alarm, got the taxi to the airport the next morning, seven o'clock out of Belfast and the Heathrow gets you in for half eight. That allows you with hand luggage only to get the 10 to 10 flight to LA. Eight hours time difference, gets you in for quarter past one, run to the passport, top of the queue, hand luggage only and pulling into the Beverly Hills Hotel for quarter to two. And wow. uh, very proud of myself, told the taxi yeah. driver the story. You know, this is what I'm here to do. And he pulled up outside the hotel. And just as my confidence was peak, this is going to be great. He said, sir, would you like me to wait? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, and all down to your box of wine. Yeah, of course. And and that you are with, you know, clearly, you know, you found that person that works and you work together. And when I was researching, believe it or not, I did some research when I was looking into what I was going to talk to you about. I got went down a rabbit hole of photos of Kat and Paddy together because you just look so even when you're paparazzi, you look so happy and natural. You look like you've got such a lovely rapport together and you're smiling a lot. I don't know whether you do that deliberately to annoy the paps. And you've had two children now. You're back in uh, the UK it feels like, yeah, professionally, we've talked about how life is good. But that personally, would you say this is the happiest that you've ever been? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that you know this, like, you know, 10 years into marriage, marriage is something that you work at. And, you know, it's that idea of, you know, what attracts you. That's not going to keep you together. It's that idea mm. of how you work together whenever the rough and the smooth and all of those things. So, you know, it's it's a journey and, you know, you put those kids into the mix and then suddenly those priorities change and, and all of those things. And I think that, you know, anybody who anybody who kind of feels they can sort of put their feet up 
you know, and go, yeah, you know, that's marriage. Sorted. That's marriage cracked. <laughs> You're kind of going, really? Um, and, and, you know, I think the lockdown thing, you know, was, was an interesting thing because when you work in entertainment, there's a lot of the time that, you know, you might be working and you might put something, you might record something and it takes quite a short period of time to do it. And people assume that that's going out for half a year. You've been working on something for half a year. And so, you know, over that space of time, like we've been married for 10 years, we've probably been married for, I would say, for about 30. Because <laughs> if you look at a normal couple when they get up in the morning and they spend that 45 minutes with each other and, you know, they get their breakfast and they, you know, somebody leaves for work and somebody else goes somewhere else. And then you come back, you maybe three or four hours with them that evening. If you're lucky, maybe less than that. And you add that up and you see these pictures of these old people who are, oh, we're 50 years married and we're blissfully happy. And it's been an amazing journey. You go, I think you maybe You've spent been together for five, five years, seven <laughs> max. So, so what was really interesting is, is that for the rest of the world to end up in lockdown and kind of see the stress that that put on a load of relationships, which is the amount of time that you're spending with your partner anyway, you know, so it's it that I, I, that was really interesting to see the um, the time squeeze pushing people together in the same houses. And, you know, some people could take the pressure and some people couldn't. And in terms of the decision making and because I imagine it's a big decision to leave L.A., come back to England. Those decisions, are you both, are you always equally aligned? You know, do you have a kind of power ba imbalance occasionally? Is it one person? Because people always used to say to me, oh, who's good cop and bad cop between you and Kenny? I was like, we genuinely take it in turns because, you know, you, you kind of can't, I just don't feel you can always have one person who's leading yeah. the charge. I, I No, I, I, I don't think you can, you know, and um you know, there's for a long time, I genuinely thought I was in a 50-50 in a partnership. And, uh, and, then, and then you realize so that naive. you're, <laughs> you know, and then you realize you're actually a junior shareholder in a 50-50 partnership. You go, I thought we're 50-50. Why have I, why do you seem to have more shares in that? So it's, um, look, I, I think with big decisions, you know, like that, you kind of have to float stuff. And sort of see how that's going to go. You know, like you, you don't, you know, you drop that into conversation. And, you know, so it's... That's fancy moving back to England. <laughs> well, it, you know, what was what was weird about it was, was that it was Kat who wanted to do that. You know, it was it was more so her decision because I think being a new mum and not having the family, you know, mm -hmm. around and not having that, you know, network of... of cousins and you know brothers yeah. and you know all of that stuff. all the stuff that you remember from your childhood I think it's very you get very nostalgic yeah. don't you for that yeah and so you know I think for me you know someone like London is is not home London's never really going to be home for me you know in my head I still live in a little village in in County Down, County Down. even though I haven't lived there full time <laughs> for sort of 30 years so I'm like this is the the tricks that you play on yourself. So, you know, living in London, my family was always a flight away anyway. So that idea of it being a longer flight away from L.A., I think wasn't as much of a problem for me as someone who sort of, you know, had to get on a flight to go to see them anyway. And I also think, you know, that because... Kat was the one with the, you know, the successful career out there. She was the, the one who 
chose that she wanted to leave that at that right time. So that's that's a decision that that she made, and only she can, yeah, and only yeah, and only she can make. And I think that it's your job then to support to go and get the late late show (laughs) yes exactly it's your job to to come back to ireland uh, uh, to come back to london host a show in ireland yeah so um i i might be going to ireland to to do (laughs) to work every week to to work every week she's going great that sounds great this the what i see less of you and this guy (laughs) brilliant you'll be in one of those normal marriages now where you you know you you can last a bit longer even because you've done a bit more time apart (laughs) there you go so you know we can make it now to our our 50th anniversary in uh in the next five years but that, you, that what you touch on there actually is really interesting. Olivia Williams, the actress, was on. Her husband, Rashan, is an actor as well. And we talked about a- acting, you know, duos, couples who both act and how difficult that can be if one person is getting the big roles and trying not to have the kind of professional jealousy. With you two, it doesn't seem like you're going for the same gigs, you know, and you 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 seem genuinely to be kind of, as you've said a few times there, absolutely delighted by her incredible success there and you know and a big admirer of what she does and keeping that kind of you know not being competitive to the point where you're you know sabotaging the other's career is really important in what you do obviously it's really interesting that that is kind of a it's an outside in statement i think isn't it whenever you know people see people that work you know in, in a similar industry and so that's a narrative that some people would like to inject into that. You know, the idea that you're married to someone who you love, you, why would you not want them? You want them to go out there and be the best they can be and, and, you know, do, do the best they can do. And I think what's, what's been interesting for me over the last, you know, since, since we've, come back and you know I've been making more documentaries and you know I've been doing the radio and then I I landed a film role and so what what's weird is that the type of stuff that I'm doing is less and less like the type of stuff that you know the cat does so it, it sort of feels like a more the chats about work are more interesting because they're different projects you know or different styles of project. Does she have good advice though? If you were in, ever in a quandary about doing something, is she quite intuitive about what works, or do you not ask for that? She—that's a real sign of weakness. That's <laughs> <laughs> you got to be—you got to be absolutely buckled before you ask for advice in our house. That, that's just <laughs> nobody asks anybody for anything. Nobody. Least of all the kids, they yeah. are self-sufficient. They, they ask for are, nothing. <laughs> they are just so it's um what's in what's interesting being married to someone who has navigated her way not just through television here but television somewhere else there's a sort of experience there about how stuff ends up working out and and how deals get done and how deals don't get done and different things you know and i think that's um you know i i know that that she's got that sort of superpower in terms of sort of she just knows stuff mm, you know mm. and and so i kind of still sometimes don't but pretend that i do and as i say really i i probably should more i should go I really, more advice <laughs> i should go i'm not sure about this what do you think <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> that, whereas you that just would be a real on moment. That'd be a real moment. 
you ply on making the same mistakes again and just having an eye roll in the kitchen when when you're explaining how did that go ru- well <laughs> i'll tell you i'll tell you now you've asked Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, Patrick, you weren't giving too much away about whether or not you still follow a kind of fanatically healthy LA lifestyle. Um, but I know a man who um, who did once help you lead a healthier lifestyle. And he is our expert today. It is Professor Greg White, um, who, of course, has helped many a celebrity complete enormous physical challenges uh, in the aid of all kinds of uh, brilliant charities. And you two worked together. So it's a reunion. Hi, Greg. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, how are you guys? Patrick, good to see you. There he is, the ledge, the ledge, looking exactly the same as he did all those years ago. It's just... The only thing that tires Greg White is just having to deal with celebrities that don't know what they're doing. That's the only thing that ages this man. There's no physical activity or pursuit. It's just... The patience just slowly runs out where you go... Oh my God, how many more celebrities am I going to have to explain that you have to put the effort in to get the result? (laughs) It's what you put Uh, in is what you get out. That's true. What did you do, Patrick? What was the challenge? Remind us. Uh, we did the cycling from, uh, from John O'Groats to, to Land's End. That was, um, it was a kind of a 24 hour thing that we did in a rolling format. Like wasn't a relay. It, where, relay. Yeah, I, I was just mm. look, looking for the word. Thank you for your, your <laughs> immense sports knowledge. And by the way, Greg, thanks for sitting there and being so polite while you're sitting screaming in your brain going, it's called a relay, you dummy. Cry that loud. Um, so we started. So what was lovely about it is that most people, when they do that ride, they start in Land's End and they go to John O'Groats because the wind prevailing coming up uh, across Britain that normally you have the wind in your back but the BBC and Comic Relief decided in their wisdom that they really wanted the final shot to be at Land's End with the sun going down in Cornwall so we essentially just we rode from Scotland right the way down into a headwind all the way all the way along and um, and, and don't forget Patrick in February <laughs> the driving one, the, sleep wasn't there it was and, and I always remember first out was David Williams actually he was first up on, on when we set off from John O'Groats and about two and a half minutes in the first snowstorm hit and then that was and I remember being out with you Patrick and it was it was I mean it was waist deep snow on either side of the road as we were going yeah. through the, the highlands of Scotland yeah and I, I remember uh, there was a night going up Glencoe the temperature gauge that actually froze on the Outriders motorbike that was ahead of us. <laughs> it was 
Patrick. <laughs> Have you carried on cycling, Patrick? Uh, not, no, not so much. Not, not so much after that. What, what was really interesting about it is, is that that you kind of genuinely, you know, you were training mentally thinking that this is going to be, you know, a great act of, of endurance. And then we had a bus that we all slept on. And uh, you realize that some people's sort of level of endurance was was better than others when there was Davina and, and you know, myself and, and Fern Cotton. And we were all sort of Russell Howard. We were all just sleeping in our gear. And, uh, and David Williams, I think he just come off, you know, come off uh, cycling his leg one day. And he managed to change himself into a pair of Tom Ford silk pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and lay on this bunk like sort of Howard Hughes and, and you, you should have thinking <laughs> even then he was making too much money so, uh, but uh, like, like I mean he's nothing to prove he's nothing to prove no, but maybe not maybe not a team kind of guy with that, like, with, that, the, that with the silk pyjamas he, he doesn't need to be the man the man is a, is a machine he's a machine <laughs> Uh, well, now talking of machines, uh, we obviously focus on on kind of a lot of midlife health and exercise, and men in particular need different things in midlife, Greg, don't they? Physically to to women and training. But I've been doing a lot of reading around longevity at the moment and uh, hacking, gene hacking, and D- uh, DNA testing and all that. And it feels like every book, every article you read, it, exercise it comes down to exercise every time. It's one of the three pillars potentially of of you know how you're going to live longer for better which must be just music to your ears because you've been saying this all along <laughs> i've been saying it for so long i get bored of it myself but i mean it, it's one of those things that that you know to some extent is utterly obvious isn't it is that we have evolved to move and so the idea of not moving must be intuitively must be bad for us um, and, and i think to some extent it's actually coined it in, in that way rather than thinking look it's, a, it's all about exercise what it is all about is all about not being sedentary. And, and that's the key to it is that the more we move, and I think it, it, and it's also being very careful about that word because in the UK and the US is exactly the same, is that we, as soon as anybody says exercise, everybody immediately says, oh, sport. And it's not sport. You know? and, and so I always coin it as movement. And what we're talking about is just moving more and more often. And, and that's the critical thing. We've evolved to do that. And so therefore, when we do it, it has incredible positive benefits for health, both physical, mental, social and emotional. You know, it's just understanding what we already know. Do you move a lot, Paddy? I mean, I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Move it. By the way, what? there's a young man who was a middle-aged man, but there's a man who lives with two smaller children. See, mine are teens. It's been a while since I watched Madagascar, Madagascar. but that <laughs> is one of the great children's films, and that's what you've been watching lately, haven't you? You've been watching a bit of Madagascar. Hey, look, look, I mean, I can give you the full range here. We can go into a bit of Pepper Pig or Teen Titans Go. Like you, I can talk you through creative Minecraft. I mean, whatever you need to know how to kill a wither, I am your man. So it's... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, or movement, you know, or movement. It's um, what, what, what's what's really w- weird about it is is that I remember doing a marathon once with my two brothers, just the once. It was it was horrific, and uh, it was the London Marathon. And I I did a show called Stupid Punts years ago. I hosted that, uh, and it was for BBC Three. And we had our final final show of the series on the Friday night before the London Marathon, and the last guest was. Johnny Vegas and 
this was on a Thursday night before the marathon. And I thought that I, you know, I could go rap party, drink, have a bit of a party, you know, a few days before the marathon, having, you know, done my training. And How that, old were you at this point? Yeah. So in my 30s. <laughs> and um, and uh, I thought, you know, eat a bit of spaghetti bolognese, you know, on the Top Saturday. Yeah, you know, I'll be, you know, drink a couple of Lucasaid sports. I'll be back in the game. And the session went on a wee bit longer and it was the final big breakfast ever on the Friday morning. I knew we were in trouble whenever we were going around, right, the other green rooms in the BBC, right, because we drunk everything in our green room. Parkinson was still on at that stage and we drunk everything in Parkinson's green room. And then we went to Newsnight and we'd pretty much done that as well. And I thought, okay, now it's time to go home. And... um Johnny Vegas just opened this plastic holdall that he had over his shoulder and he had two bottles of vodka and he went, her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. <laughs> he was a guest on the big breakfast the next morning and I thought he is never going to show up. There is still footage of Johnny Vegas falling through the hedge and breaking the picket fence on that Friday morning. So he could barely make the big breakfast on Friday and I decided I was going to run the London Marathon with my two brothers. Do you know what though, Paddy? It's very funny because that is exactly like Paula Radcliffe's preparation for her yeah. record-breaking yeah. marathon. It was, it's yeah. uncanny when yeah. he was telling that story. Actually, exactly. I thought he was talking about Paula. Yeah, right. And so, so my two brothers who had trained, we were all going to run it together, and you know, we'd we'd been making pretty good times, and you know, we'd done our long runs and the whole thing, and I started to cramp. I think it was you know about seventeen, too far out. 17 miles and it got Pretty to the point to 17 yeah and uh it got to the point where the only way they could genuinely get me home was we were we were sort of i was hobbling up the embankment and they would jog a little bit and whenever they thought i was about to give up they'd go there's a tv camera i think that's sue barker i think that's it right <laughs> and so vanity the vanity of you're actually dying here on TV, and that was the that was the only thing that got me home. And so the running thing, I I kind of uh, you know I felt that I'd done that over forty though, Greg. I think you have to lift weights. I have enough Lego to pick up, but I think if you go and you lift a little bit of weight and try to put a bit of muscle mass on, that you know you. I think you're spot on. I think Greg's nodding furiously uh, yeah. a little bit 100%. like Churchill the dog in the back yeah, of the car. That's right. He's, he's <laughs> that's nodding right. away. <laughs> but it is. You know, I mean. I, I, a hundred percent right, and 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 it's both men and women. I think what's really interesting here is that that when we talk about women, often we sort of shy away from the the strength, and, and actually you know, that sort of characteristic dogma. If you go to the gym, and it's only the men in the strength section, uh, and I've actually been working over the past couple of years on a, a variety of different projects where we, we're encouraging women to take up strength work. Um, so there's a, a project that I that I coordinate called Couch to Kilos, but it's the same for men as well. Now women are going through menopause. Men are simultaneously are going through this thing called somatopause, where we see a reduction in growth hormone, reduction in testosterone. And, and related to that in both men and women, we see a reduction in muscle mass. Um, now, that muscle really matters uh, because as we get older, the risk of, of type 2 diabetes, for example, rises commensurate with that reduction in muscle mass. But equally, it's about functional capacities. You know, you, you just coined it beautifully there, Patrick, and that is about playing with your kids. You know, as a grandparent is playing with your grandchildren, it's being able to do the shopping, it's walking upstairs. All of those are underpinned by strength and therefore muscle mass. So if if you can do absolutely nothing else, you've only got time for one session in the week, 
then without any shadow of doubt, that session should be a strength session. And if you're a man over 50, you, if, if you're an older dad, you know, that you, you have to, you have to sort of, you know, keep yourself fit. And sometimes you get confused, you know, by people. Yeah. I remember whenever my first son was born, I was down on the boardwalk in Santa Monica. I was pulling him along in a trolley and these two women were, oh my God, he's so cute. And so I said, yeah, he takes his looks after his mum. And they said, I don't care who he takes his looks after. You must be such a proud grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> had you had another night out with Johnny Vegas that yeah, and, 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 and at that point you kind of you just oh. realize okay I need a you know but like I, I kind of feel like if, if you have your kids older you sort of thinking to yourself here you know I, I, I gotta lift a little bit I gotta keep myself in sort of fairly decent nick if, I, if I'm thinking I'm gonna have a pint with these guys at some point in my life or, you know, see them through college or whatever they want to do in their lives. You know, it's, it's the thing where got left a little bit of weight. Yeah. But I, even if you have your kids younger, you know, Kenny had Reuben and Lois at 32, he's 51 now. And I'm obviously, you know, I totally agree with everything Greg says that I lift weights and I, I enjoy doing weights and you can get your heart rate up as well when you're doing it. But he'd been kind of off it. And I said to him, he had to try on a rugby shirt because we were clearing out some tops. And it was, he said, oh, this was my last shirt for Scotland. And he put it on and I said, you look like a fan. And... Um, <laughs> Hey, 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 you know what's great about this, Greg, is that clearly it seems that, that Kenny gets the same level of support from you as I do from Kat. That's 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 great, Gabby. It's what you call, I think, motivation. And, um, there was yeah. there was a kind of there was a kind of gap where the arm used to fill the shirt. And, um, and so and of course, now he's got a, a six foot five rugby playing son who's uh, 112 kilos. Uh, he's got to, he's got to keep up the arm wrestling. But he still can. This is a weird thing, Greg somewhere the strength is like he can still beat Ruben in an arm wrestle you know it's still there the strength's still there so you've got it you've got to use it though or you lose it that's my point point. Yeah, and um, it was a long way of saying right. it and there's there's this really interesting sort of there's a, a dogma going around sort of society now about obesity you know we've, we've become obesity obsessed and I think what's interesting is that with that fall in muscle mass what we can become is we can become what's called sarcopenically obese so it's called sarcopenic obesity. What that means is that body composition is fat or lean tissue. So it's muscle or fat, effectively. Obviously, you've got bone and organs, etc. But And what happens is, is that actually it's the percentage of body fat that, that dictates whether you're obese or not. And the key issue is that if you're falling in muscle mass, then actually what that means is the percentage of fat mass is rising. And so therefore, you can become fat without actually outchanging size. And critically, and I think really importantly, is that often people think, oh, I'm thin, so therefore I am healthy. Uh, and, and it's untrue. Uh, you really do have to work on that muscle mass and maintain that muscle mass. And it's about the body compositions, the relationship between lean and fat tissue that really matters. So weight is better. vital. Okay, give us two more things that the midlife, uh, midlife man or woman, but uh, takeaway advice. Well, in terms of sort of globally, uh, overall health, Diet is absolutely critical. Um, there's no doubt about that. Now, again, what we've done is we've taken diet and we've made it an issue of obesity. We've made it an issue of body weight. And it's not. It, it is a, a, an issue of overall health. Um, and so I think making sure that you've got, and again, this sort of healthy, balanced diet, people are saying, what does that actually mean? I think, you know, critically, one of the, some easy phrases to remember are things like eat the rainbow. So make sure there's lots of color. If you take a look at your plate, and it looks brown, 
and only brown. That tells you one thing is that the nutrient content in that is going to be very low. And so what you should be looking at is looking at a plate that is colorful. Uh, now, for, for kids, that, that's an issue because color comes from vegetables. Um, so the way you dress that up is important. Interestingly, as we get older, what tends to happen is our appetite falls. And so what we tend to do is actually we we sort of concentrate on the things that we like and miss out on the breadth of, of nutrition. So the one thing I would say in nutrition is eat the rainbow and make it yourself. Because if you make it yourself, you know what's in it. It's not going to be highly processed. One of the critical problems with diet currently is highly processed foods. So, so that's really important. So we've got exercise, we've got diet, absolutely smoking cessation. There's no discussion to be had of that. Stop smoking. If, if you are a smoker, vaping is less problematic, but is still not healthy. And I think, again, it's that just overcoming this idea that somehow it's vaping is good for me. Well, utterly erroneous. It's better than smoking if you're a smoker, but don't start vaping. Uh, and critically, if you do start vaping, make sure that you're, you're coming off of it. You know, it's a goal to remove it completely. Uh, reduce alcohol consumption. Don't eliminate it. And I know that will please uh, Patrick on that oh, one. Oh, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> off note, the last thing I, the last thing I recall of, of Patrick on the bike <laughs> is he had in, in his water bottle cage, uh, he had a can of Guinness. <laughs> and this was <laughs> on a two hour on a two hour piece in the middle of the night. He thought that the best hydration was a, was a can of Guinness, but uh, not recommended. And, and, and did we finish the shift or did we not, Craig? I mean, we did. like we you, did. you know, and we enjoyed it. By Guinness. <laughs> Sorry, just to, just to finish on yeah. that. Critically, I think one of the things that people often forget about is actually about sleep. Sleep is absolutely central because sleep is what we call it is that the restorative sleep hypothesis is effectively that most of the restoration, most of the adaptation of the body, but particularly the brain. Mm-hmm. Is, you have to think that sleep to some extent is like a washing machine for the brain, is that what it's doing is it's actually washing the brain of the toxins that have built up during the day. And, and sleep is so incredibly important. So making sure you get not only length of sleep but the quality of sleep really matters as well okay craig as always uh, a font of knowledge a wise man thank you so much for for coming on and uh, it was lovely to reunite you two um patrick's nodding away looks really well doesn't he i think he does all those things eating the rainbow i mean i'm, I'm heading downstairs for a skittle sandwich right now <laughs> skittle sandwich yeah that's it as i always say to my kids if you can have a donut make sure it's got <laughs> strawberry jam in it because that's one of your five a day <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Uh, I love I love your advice as always. You're you're a really good example of what you know. You do what you say. So um, I think we should all be a bit more, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Um, my time pleasure. with you is nearly up, Patrick. There was one thing I wanted to talk. You talked about being a father a little bit later. We won't go into detail about your own father, and you know you've you've spoken brilliantly. You've made documentaries about him, and he was killed in his mid forties. Yeah, my dad was yeah. my dad was shot when he was forty five. And if you, um, I mean, if people want to know more, as I say, there's, is, there, is the documentary made currently on iPlayer? Yeah, I think um, my dad, the peace dealer me, that was something which I think the BBC put back up on the iPlayer for the 25th anniversary, anniversary of, of the, the Good Friday yeah, Good Agreement. Friday. And there's an amazing series at the moment that I was lucky enough to take part in. My episode um, hasn't quite gone out yet, but it's all on, on iPlayer as well. Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. And that is kind yeah. of just talking to different people from all sides and trying to sort of chronicle 
what we came through and, and hopefully where we're going. And no matter how, I mean, you lost your dad in such a, a violent and sudden and, you know, just I imagine the most uh, frightening way in many ways and what happened to you afterwards. But to lose your father at that age as a teenager, when you became a father and also when you got to the age that he was when he died, were those both seminal moments for you? The becoming a father thing wasn't as seminal um, in terms of in terms of my relationship and my brain going back to that place the the idea of being a dad and um and becoming older than than he was whenever he was killed that that was a bigger thing you know that idea of you always assume that your dad's got all the answers you always assume that your dad is a fully functioning grown up and so I was 16 when my dad was killed. Um, my brother had just turned 18. It was actually his 18th birthday, the day that my dad was was killed. My younger brother was 11. My my older brother and I, and my younger brother as well, later we all played a lot of Gaelic football and we were uh, part of the, the down under 18 Gaelic football uh, team that won in all Ireland. And so you know this whenever you've got a young athlete in the family that they are being sent out, especially I think male athletes, you're being sent out and told that you're a man before you're a man. And so I kind of thought that I was fully formed at sort of 16. And then it was only really looking back when you go, oh my God, I was just a kid when, when that happened. And the idea then Conversely, looking at him at 45, I thought he had everything sorted in his head. And to get to 45 and to realize I don't have anything sorted here and I'm kind of bluffing my way with these kids and feeling, you know, making mistakes and trying to get it right. And so to realize his vulnerability at the age that he was killed. That was a, a a bigger thing, and it was something that you couldn't really process until you'd reached that age yourself, and you'd realised where you were headwise. Mm -hmm. And do you think it's changed the direction of you as a father? You would never know, obviously, because it's your own experience. But do you think it's given you a different perspective as a father? I'm not sure it's given me. Well, actually, no. Maybe, maybe it has. It's definitely given me a different perspective as a person. And so that then feeds into, you know, who you are as as a father. And I, you know, I, I think there's, there's, there's two things, which is sometimes people talk about, you know, doing stuff with your kids. I think just spending time with them, just being there. You don't have to set this bar that every day is a, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Just being there. It's the little things that I remember from my childhood. And so sometimes I think as parents, we beat ourselves up into, oh, how can we give them the best holiday? How can we, you know, go and make a memory, which is nearly a cliche. And when I think back to the to the stuff that's, you know, a really nice memory and some of them are just random and small and sitting, you know, and, uh, you know, in the passenger seat and 
eating an ice cream with him while listening to a Billy Connolly tape and the two of us hearing Billy Connolly say fuck for the first time and both of us looking at each other and I'm 14 and he's sort of 43 and we're going yeah no we're both laughing at that and so it's <laughs> it, it's you know li- li- it's it's the little things don't beat yourself up about trying to achieve these big things as parent and it's for me it's more just spending time with them and trying to memories are I think always made by just getting out of a routine so it's if, if they if they have to you know if they stay up a little bit later one night here for a special event it, it's don't beat yourself up about it that that's weirdly what they're going to remember in 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 later life but i think i think in terms of the circle of life you know losing losing my dad early has made me there was lots of my friends you know hadn't lost any of their parents you know sometimes you have people that lose people through cancer or or different illness or you know other tragedies and um and i think maybe growing up a little bit too quick it it's not a good thing having to be that grown up doesn't necessarily help in the long run but it does let you know that life will have ups and downs i think also one of the things that i find with it is you never know in any day what anybody is carrying, you know? And I've heard you talk about your family and, you know, what happened to you guys. And I feel it's a weird, sometimes it's embarrassing and sometimes it's a weird privilege to be able to have a platform where you can talk about people that you've lost and people actually give you that space. There's so many people in life that lose people and you have no idea that they've lost them. You've no idea what anybody is carrying on a day-to-day basis. And so I think losing my dad early has really made me realize that sometimes people are just having a bad day and they're not angry at you. It's that thing of, you know, most people that you think have cut you up in traffic, they're not saying, I'm going to cut this guy up in traffic. They're going, oh my God, I'm in the wrong lane. I've got to get over before these lights. Like literally they're going through something else and you've judged them by another set of of, of circumstances. So, you know, there's that great football quote, isn't it? You know, that, uh, you know, football isn't, you know, a matter of life and matter death. matter of life it's, and death. More it's more important, important than that. For, for me, it's not life or death. It's life and death. They sit beside each other. And how the stuff that you have to carry and everybody has to carry it, you can't let that. It's sometimes very difficult for people. But when the moments in your life are good and you've got that moment with your children or you've got that moment with your wife or your career or any of these things, don't be afraid to celebrate it. Don't be afraid to to go, Jesus, this is great. Because... Bad things will happen and it'll all be intertwined. Beautifully said. What a way to finish, which um, seems so so poignant. We started, obviously, talking about bumps in the road and we've kind of finished as well. We've come full circle on that, the circle of life. And actually, what you said there reminded me how, have you ever been to, I mean, I'm sure you have over the years, you've been to a really good wake at a funeral and everybody always goes, oh, why didn't we do this when they were alive? <laughs> and that is exactly that, isn't it? It's having those moments of realisation when things are good. It, it's, it's exactly that. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's that thing of, 
you know, people talk about, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. But you kind of, the only thing I think you can do in life is to, is to make sure that the material for your wake is really quite good. <laughs> so, so, so that when alcohol is added and the stories are being told that you left nothing, that you left nothing on the pitch, that people are going, do you remember that time? Do you remember that time? And so suddenly at the end of it, you know, you do want, you do want your wake to be the one which is just, you know, the cucumber sandwiches and the cups of tea and the, oh, well, <laughs> you want it to be the, Jesus, what a life that was. What a time that was. Well, hopefully, as this is the midpoint and you're 52, we've got a long time to wait for that. Um, 104. But, uh, 104. Uh, yeah. But uh, Patrick, uh, it's been an absolute joy. I knew you'd be an amazing midpoint guest. Thank you so, so much for coming on and giving us your time. And best of luck with everything, but definitely uh, go and smash the Late Late Show. I know you're going to be brilliant. Thank you. Gabby, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Gabby's book is out now. <laughs> Well, it's always great to catch up with Patrick. Uh, what a force he is. And if you want more of Mr. Kilty in your life, join him on Five Live from nine o'clock every Saturday morning and very soon on The Late Late Show on RTE. He's going to be a very busy man. Big thanks to Professor Greg White as well. Head to gregwhite.com if you're interested in finding out more about his work. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family so we can reach more midpointers. And also, if you can, please leave a review. I love reading them. Thank you to Spiritland Productions for helping me put this together. I hope you can join me again next week for more musings on all things midlife. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.